What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Okay, well, it's going to have to you and Tom Cruise do it. My name is Jared. Today, we are joined by the rest of the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Yo. And Jacob. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest today joining us from the Vsauce 2 YouTube channel and also the Create Unknown podcast. We got Kevin Lieber. What's up, Kevin? Oh, not much. How are you guys doing? Great. Thank you for joining us, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking all things big and Lebowski. <laughs> oh, indeed. All right, so today we're talking about The Big Lebowski, the 1998 movie written and directed by the Coen brothers, starring Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, and Julianne Moore. As always, let's go around and get first impressions. What was it like if you guys can reach back into your memory and remember what was it like <laughs> watching the first time? And what was it like revisiting it for this podcast? Let's start with Jacob. Wow. Okay. So I, I, I saw the, I remember the trailer so clearly. I think I must have seen Fargo maybe, or like, oh God, what was I seeing in theaters? Maybe it was actually before uh, Saving Private Ryan. They had the trailer for The Big Lebowski in 98. Okay. Is that about right? And anyway, I remember seeing it as a kid thing. Oh, I, I loved Kingpin, one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was like, oh, here's a movie about bowling. I can't wait. But it was a very, very mysterious trailer. If you've ever seen it, it's like, there's nothing, nothing at all is revealed. Um, did not see it in theaters, but I saw it. I would have I would have been like twelve or thirteen years old, so super inappropriate. But I saw it early when it was on home video, and I could not believe how many times the word "fuck" came up. I was like, "What the heck?" Yeah. And my mom was like, "What are you watching?" Um, I don't think I really pieced together the movie and like the brilliance of it. It took a long time to like kind of get it and let it sink in. Um, but I remember just feeling gravitated toward it and quoting it almost immediately. And uh, yeah, so I loved it then. Just watched it again yesterday, probably the 40th or 50th time <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. I, I literally know every morsel of the movie and I love it. And I loved it again. I love it. It's great. It's great. And there's so many decisions at every point that I'm like, is that intentional too? And why is that so good? And it's just great. It's imminently, imminently quotable. <laughs> <laughs> to bring in a serious man. Okay, cool. What about you, Austin? Oh, fuck, man. I have no clue the first time I saw it. Again, I've seen this so many times. Um, you know, my buddy Troy that I do the Owls at Dawn podcast with, this is his favorite movie. So on, at university, it was always streaming. So I have no fucking clue. I've seen it so many times. It's almost not even like, I don't even view it as a film. I just view it as a part of my cultural life, if that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah. it had been a few years since I'd seen it. So watching it last night was actually really enjoyable. Uh, you know, I'm in the throngs of writing my book. So every day for me right now is just intense writing. Uh, and this was a really lovely reprieve to just go home and laugh. And I don't remember laughing as much. And I think maybe it's just because I'm in a state of delirium. But I think it's fucking fantastic. Um, I love that there's an entire religion, you know, based on dudism. Mm. Uh, I, I think that I think that at a surface level, you can just enjoy this film very simply, but then at the same time, there are also some, some really interesting deep dives. There's some amazing references, and there's some interesting sort of ideological clashes, and obviously, clearly, the Coen brothers are philosophically astute, so I'm going to nerd out on some of that shit. But I just think it's a fucking great movie at all levels, from the sort of superficial to the deep and philosophical as well. Awesome. Well, I hope you are keeping your mind limber with a strict drug regiment as you write your book. Uh, anyway, uh, Kevin, what about you? Can you remember the first time you saw it? No, and I'm immediately fascinated now by the fact that none of us can. So maybe this movie like didn't exist and just sort of was like injected into our like the milieu at some point. I don't know how it first was conceived because 
I spent all day trying to think of the first time that I watched it, and, and I came up empty. It was definitely one of the first DVDs I ever bought because mm-hmm. whenever the Polygram it was DVD, that I, I saw that. it, I loved it immediately, and then I was the guy showing it to everyone else. Did your friends get it? Yeah, we all loved it. I mean, I think that, you know, I definitely got the DVD in high school and then brought it to college and then just showed it to everybody in college, and we, we watched it countless times. And I, and I did rewatch it uh, earlier today, actually, in preparation for talking about it with kind of a critical lens a little bit, taking notes and thinking about it thematically and what each character represents. And even though I've seen the movie countless times it was really kind of like watching it again sort of for the first time because of you know just kind of like diving into what each character means you know without getting too pretentious about it but i like doing that kind of thing oh well that's what we do <laughs> that's what we do here time. <laughs> perfect uh, cool well i hate to burst your bubble but i actually do remember the first time i saw this movie mm. i was in vale colorado and i was out skiing with uh, my friend's family, and I did not put sunscreen on and got debilitatingly sunburned, so I did not hit the slopes the second day. So instead, I went to the movies and I watched The Big Lebowski with my mom, and <laughs> Your mom. similar to you, like the only thing I remember is like, I can't believe how many times they say the word fuck. That's the only thing I think I came away with. I didn't get it at all. I think if I remember correctly, the only time my mother and I laughed was at the end when uh, Donnie's ashes get blown back into the dude's face. We couldn't stop laughing <laughs> the at that part. The most slapstick part, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't get it for years. In fact, it was an inside joke between my mom and I that it was the worst movie we had ever seen. And then some point in high school, I rewatched it, and I started to get it. And I, and I hesitate to use the word get it because I don't really know what that means in that content. I don't really know what that means in that context, but I guess you just find yourself in tune with the rhythm of the comedy. I found myself in like in it i get it i see why this is funny i don't know if it was just before it's time i I don't know what was going on but well i've heard it said that it's less a film about concepts and more about attitude and i think if you don't vibe with that attitude you don't fully get to immerse yourself in the overall affect you know and you gotta like that's why i think the the vo at the beginning is so important to really soak in and if you can get his voiceover at the beginning and you can vibe yourself with it then you can kind of like slip into the attitude it's kind of like when i would watch i when i was a young young kid i would watch all the cheech and chong movies and i thought they were so funny but i didn't even know what weed was right <laughs> so, Dude, so later and so so later in life once i knew what weed was i'd rewatch and i'm like oh, oh this is why this is funny and then i kind of had a similar experience with this that's but, one of my favorite parts yeah. about getting older just re-watching stuff and you're like oh my god i completely missed this joke yeah, yeah it's, it's so much funnier with this layer obviously yeah my innocent enjoyment of so many like fucking national lampoon movies and shit like that is is totally like transfigured now as i rewatch them and i'm like oh my god like i didn't even realize that that was sexual or i didn't even realize that that was you know some sort of like political or or sociocultural statement and uh yeah it's pretty funny to do that yeah so i've seen the movie like 50 times of course in college a lot of times i mean it's it's just so good But anyway, guys, let's go into a recap. So, Jeffrey Lebowski, a.k.a. The Dude, is minding his own business one day when two men break into his apartment and pee on his rug, mistaking him for another much wealthier Jeffrey Lebowski, whose wife owes money to a notorious pornographer named Jackie Treehorn. 
So at the behest of his friend Walter, the dude appeals to the real Jeffrey Lebowski to get his rug replaced. Mr. Lebowski rudely denies his request and throws him out, but the dude takes a rug anyway. Soon the dude is brought before Mr. Lebowski and informed that Mr. Lebowski's wife Bunny has been kidnapped for ransom. They ask the dude to act as courier and give the kidnappers the money. En route to drop off the money, Walter, the dude's friend, decides to throw a ringer and botches the entire exchange. The dude's car is then stolen with the money in it. The dude is then interrogated by Mr. Lebowski's daughter, Maude, who wants him to retrieve the money on her behalf. The dude recovers the car, but the briefcase, with the money in it, is nowhere to be found. He discovers the thief is a teenager named Larry Sellers. Walter and the dude question Larry, but are stonewalled. The dude then meets Jackie Treehorn, is thrown out, and sleeps with Maude. When he has an epiphany, there was never any money in the briefcase. The Big Lebowski wanted Bunny to be killed and wanted to use the dude as a patsy. Bunny comes back from what turned out to be a vacation in Vegas, and the dude goes back to bowling, but not before the kidnappers burn down the dude's car and give their friend Donnie a heart attack. After giving Donnie a heartfelt send-off, the dude and Walter go back to bowling. End of movie. All right, guys, so I think it would, it behooves us to initially, let's talk about the legacy of this film and the mm. fandom, because... It's exploded. Usually, we tend to stay pretty textual, which we'll get to, but this is certainly a, mm. a special thing. Mm -hmm. There's Lebowski Fest, which is I, I've <laughs> been to. There's they're, they're all over the country. There's multiple ones in different cities. I went to the one in L.A. a couple of years ago, and Jeff Bridges was actually there. Oh right, um, he's written a book on. Well, Dudism, yeah, he co-authored right? the book on Dudism, didn't he? Right, like Dudism and Taoism or something like that. Right, and then yeah. that's I think that's right exactly, or the Tao of Dude or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And you've got the Church of Latter Day Dude, and you've got. <laughs> I mean, That's my yeah. Favorite name. Uh, so I was people just, are officiating I was, weddings. I, I was at a yeah. wedding. I was at a wedding uh, just a couple months ago, and yeah, it was it was or it was an ordained minister of the Church of Latter Day Dude was That's the so officiator of the. I just the, married my sister like a couple of months ago. I should have gotten Whoa. ordained by the the Church of Latter Day Dudes. Absolutely. Oh man, I kind of think, I kind of thought you might have. But. Oh, that's a big fail on my part. No, I've actually been ordained for a long time because of my old my old past. But um, you know, they also have like all kinds of bars that are themed after Lebowski's. My favorite bar in Glasgow on the west side is a bar called Lebowski's, and basically they have like forty different types of signature cocktails, the standard kind, and all the drinks are named after things from the show. You know, the nihilist, the toe, etc., etc., etc. And so, and each one of them is a sort of different take you know this one has chocolate in it this one has whatever else in it and it's probably my favorite bar in all of actually in all of scotland um and it's uh i used to go there all the time it's it's amazing man the book is called zen and the art of bowling by the way thanks nigel so why do you guys think this movie has resonated on on such a level I would say that it's something to do with the attitude of fuck it, let's go bowling. There's like yeah. this ultimate sort of surrender to pressure, you know, wars, a whole bunch of, of, of crap goes on. And it's this attitude of, of dudes, or, or I guess it, really that's Walter, but like it's this attitude of just complete uh, shenanigans and, and uh, randomness and chaos and just sort of a, I don't know, just like a complete absurdity to it all of like in the in the face of all that pressure fuck it dude let's just go bowling and i think there's something about that 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 resignation that sort of resonates a lot and then the quirkiness of the characters i mean there's so much to the actual comedy but i think if i were to put it in a nutshell that's the part that resonates the most with me is just the attitude to come to your point austin earlier hmm. kevin yeah, what do you think yeah 
Well, I think for me, you know, what it, why it resonated so well with me to begin with is that it, it really seems like a study of how everybody is a little bit weird and everybody has their own goals <laughs> and they're using each other for different reasons and, and no one is really being truthful. And, and it's really about everyone around the dude and the dude is just kind of like in the center. He is like the, the center cosmos of this crazy world. And um, it reminds me a lot of A Confederacy of Dunces, which is my favorite mm. book, where that book very much is about the characters around the main character and mm. and what they represent kind of in society. And The Big Lebowski, to me, very much is about the early 90s and what was going on and all of like the different struggles that, depending on your upbringing and what what you lived through, whether it was like Vietnam or, you know, you were a baby boomer or a former hippie, you know, leads you down different paths. Hmm. Interesting. Were you going to say something, Austin? I was just going to say it's tough to put your finger on it, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think because it is such a mood film, it's such an attitude film. It's it's almost like any any portrayal of it through words is like a betrayal of it you kind of just have to immerse yourself in it but I think it's because there are all these discontinuities and I love what Kevin just said about the cosmos and how the Lebowski how Lebowski the dude is the center of um this cosmos but then I wonder because the title of the film is the big Lebowski what do you think the title refers to does it refer to the dude does it refer to Lebowski is it sort of a juxtaposition of the two can I quote uh, Earthling Cinema? Yeah, yeah. So the film is loosely based on Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, going so far as to steal, to, to plagiarize two words of the title. <laughs> so that's, we'll get into that a little bit later, but it's basically the whole movie is a play off noir conventions. And the, mm. yeah, the movie is, the title the is sleep. a play on The Big Sleep. Okay. Interesting. But why not the big, why not the big dude? Big, uh, because the name because, really ties because, the movie together. Because the, <laughs> big is, yeah, exactly. Well said. Uh, all right. So there's actually an essay. So Jacob has a friend who is a. Uh, he's the chair he, of religious a, studies at uh, University of Charleston, I think. Who wrote a whole book on the Coen brothers and religion, and this is actually a chapter in his book, uh, written by Erica Hurwitz Andrus, and it's about fandom in the, the Big Lebowski. And I actually have some quotes here. We can put some links in the description. Yeah, we can too. put some links in the description. So she distinguishes between two different kinds of fandom. So there are the achievers, which are the Lebowski Fest roadies, basically. Mm -hmm. They go to every Lebowski Fest. And then there are the dudists who literally think of it as a religion. They follow dudism and the Church of the Dude. So this is what she says why she thinks, or as from her studying the achievers and the dudists, what she thinks is why the film resonates so much. She says, The common thread in both fan responses to the film is an understanding of the dude as an exemplar of authenticity in a world of materialistic, competitive, ultimately meaningless American alienation. Both the achievers and the dudists use the film to create a world in which they can use humor, irony, and self-expression to challenge a culture that assumes life must be serious, competitive, and purpose-driven. So I found that to be pretty interesting. Yeah, it seems like because there's this sense of, uh, well, first of all, there's like a sense of belonging just in being part of the Achievers or part of the church. Uh, but like to Austin's point, like this whole world is, ha or is it maybe it was Kevin's point, the whole world is happening around the dude and he remains this sort of one, I wouldn't say calm, but this one consistent piece of this mm. puzzle as things are swirling around him. Yeah, um, there's a gravitas he, there. 
Yeah, and the, and and we're, what we're what we're exa- what we're seeing demonstrated is how do you respond to all this craziness in the world? And I think that there was another piece around uh, in that book about um, masculinity, extreme masculinity, and these quick postures for power, and and just the dude is just sort of very chill throughout. Like he's saying, he remains relatively calm, except for when he's you know freaking out. They're going to kill that poor woman. I have to keep stopping myself from quoting the movie because I, I told Jacob before this. I'm like, I'm going to put an embargo on quoting the movie too many times. Uh, <laughs> we do have someone here who does say that uh, they have a, a, a ringtone on their phone that says, phone's ringing, dude. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> uh, I, one thing that, that I noticed today is just how incredibly selfish everybody is except for the dude and Donnie. But I mean, Donnie is just so helpless that he can't really do anything for anyone. Like Donnie is just relegated to almost non-existence. Like he's just so in the background that no one's even listening. But the dude somehow is is selfless. He will go to like his landlord's stupid Dance one man yeah. show. Right. Mm. But yeah. nobody else really is kind of doing anything for for anybody else. I mean, I guess Walter helps out the dude, but but Walter quickly turns the dude's problems or his achievements into his own. Like when he says like, you know, it's, you know, we need this. It's only why should we settle for 20 grand? And the dude's like, "We? Why we?" So, you know, <laughs> even the Walters, uh, the Walter, the Walter is using the dude, uh, but the dude doesn't really seem to use anyone. And Walter, yeah, and Walter's totally only showing up which is which is fascinating. Everybody else has the self-interest, but the dude demonstrates well, that you can you can be an ethical being without necessarily needing to seek your own interests in the pursuit of those ethical well, ends. And that's well, fascinating, things, you know. Yeah, well first first thing Walter is, yeah, he's using like this exchange. He reminded me a lot of Cartman when I watched it this time around. I was like he's using it. He'll only go pick him up, pick up the dude and do this deed because it's going to help the bowling their their tournament. It's going to have be there for right, league right. practice and he needs that or he can make money on this thing. Uh, but th- the only time that I that you'd say that maybe the dude's Morality is a bit quest in question is when he does ultimately say the dude said to take the guy said to take any any rug in the house you know the old man said to take any rug he'd like that part yeah, but fuck the big Lebowski. but fuck yeah I guess yeah. he's got he's rich as shit and he's fine and he can afford this rug but that's the only time really where the dude is a little more self interested it seems hmm. have you guys heard the theory that Donnie isn't real that he's just a figment of Walter's imagination I have not I have not heard that. Yeah, and so I, I, I hate this, those theories of like, it, oh, who's what's that actually character? a fight? I, was, I just like hate theories like this of like, I heard that, I've heard that for Black Swan, like maybe the mother doesn't actually exist, but I'm sorry, <laughs> keep going. No, no, it's just that maybe uh, Donnie is a figment of Walter's imagination um, that's one of his buddies from Nam that was killed, that's constantly haunting him. That's why he's constantly like, shut up, Donnie, and shit like that. Because, you know, uh, the bowling teams are teams of two, but there are three of them, uh, the uh, the dude doesn't really ever pay attention to Donnie, except maybe to sort of like humor Walter is how it's understood. Um, so, yeah, I've heard it. And then I guess it was actually brought up to the Cohen brothers and they were kind of like, no, that's not true at all. <laughs> Interesting. So so I want to uh, read one more quote from uh, Erica Andrus. She says that this is uh, why people find religious meaning in The Big Lebowski. She says... It might be a question of a religion masquerading as a joke rather than a joke masquerading as a religion. 
This distinction fits perfectly with the activities of Lebowski fans because at the core of, quote, play lies the paradox of acting insincerely but with earnestness. And this is the paradox of the dude. His life seems to be meaningless and aimless, but therein lies his profoundly meaningful authenticity. Um, I'm just going to get through this uh, just so we can move on. Um, The dude offers imaginative, vicarious respite in a chaotic, demanding world and reminds us of important values, including friendship. So I found her insights as to why the film resonates to the crazy extent that it has to be pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's got like a really simple life, right? He just needs some white Russians, some bowling and some friends and... Yeah, he's annoyed that his rug got taken away, but he's kind of like the Epicurean in that he, Mm. yeah, there's an element that he's trying to minimize suffering, but he's not really seeking these extravagant pleasures. It's a very simple form of pleasure seeking, and he just needs that minimal standard, and then he's fucking good. And then everything else on top of that is just gravy, you know? Like, hey, he's getting laid. That's cool, but it's not like he's craving it or striving after it, you know? So it's uh it is an in, he's an interesting embodiment of stoic philosophy and epicurean philosophy and I think that juxtaposed to like the severity of the global geopolitical and uh, political economic background with the Iraq war and then of course you know all the other things around them nihilism and Walter has his diatribe about how Jesus Christ you know say what you will about the national socialists but at least it's an ethos so I mean there are these <laughs> yeah. interesting juxtapositions that the film is exploring. And I did, I did find online, yeah, reading like the stoic readings of the film, and then of course it, it's right up against the nihilism, which is pretty present, at least as the characters are concerned. And one thing I noticed with the rug is that he wasn't going to do anything. The dude wasn't even going to do anything about that until Walter really stoked that fire. In mm-hmm. him. That's true. Mm-hmm. And Walter was like, "Yo, it's the big Lebowski," and then that's really what you know set off the dude onto this crazy you know rabbit hole right, that goes right. down. It wasn't yeah. the dude. Yeah. That's a really good point. And kind of ends up back where he started in a sense, right? Like nothing really happened. This whole, I think that's sort of typical of the of the Raymond Chandler stuff is that like these big stories with, with very complicated plot ensue, but nothing ever happens. It's just really all about character. So really the nothing has really changed for the dude. I mean, he's lost Donnie. That's the biggest, I think the biggest change for him as a character. But yeah, this... If it weren't for for Walter stoking that fire for him to go do this thing and engage in this stupid plot, nothing would be any different. And that's the you know, opposite right of the hero's journey. Like the hero's totally. journey, you you need the lead character to cross the threshold, him like him or herself. And in the Big Lebowski, Walter just chucks him over the threshold essentially. My favorite reading of the or one of my favorite moments of the film that kind of speaks to the challenge of reading this film or the ultimate message of their you know, not being any grand meanings to derive from it is when Jackie Treehorn scribbles something on a piece of paper, <laughs> takes it off, walks away, and then the dude uh, traces the pencil over it. And it's just a picture of a dude with a dick. Right. And I'm like, uh, I, I feel like that's me analyzing this movie or trying to analyze this movie. I'm like trying to look beneath the surface, but every time you do, there's just a guy with a dick laughing at you for right. trying to do it. <laughs> that's great. Very apt. Yeah. And that, uh, that also must have been a direct, uh, you know, satire of those hard-boiled, like, noir films where he was supposed to discover some great clue by doing that. And look what the clue ended up being. Nothing. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, so the movie is a sort of parody on uh, Ray- on the Raymond Chandler novel slash film The Big Sleep. Uh, and yes, more to Kevin's point, instead of a hard-drinking, rough-around-the-edges, tough private eye Philip Marlowe, who is the character in a number of Raymond Chandler's books, uh, we get the exact opposite, a super laid-back stoner. And I think that's basically the comic conceit that motivates the whole movie. Uh, another thing in noir that is worth talking about is that a lot of times in noir, protagonists are always stuck in the past. So let's say in Chinatown, the character Jake Giddies is haunted by a woman he got close to who was killed back when he patrolled Chinatown. And if you go through noir films, there's always something like this. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of war stories that are mm-hmm. that, the, that haunt these people. And uh, similarly in this film, everyone is trapped in their past, but it's kind of like a joke. So the dude is kind of stuck in the hippie flower power movement of the 60s. Walter, of course, is stuck in Vietnam, also stuck in his marriage, uh, he, you know, because he, he still considers himself to be Jewish. Uh, I've heard people say that Jackie Treehorn is stuck in the glory days of Hugh Hefner and Maude is stuck in the Fluxus art movement. Hmm. And then the Big Lebowski is stuck in this wealthy kind of memory of himself, this sham. But was he never was wealthy, right? Where did it all that money come from again? His wife, His wife is super wealthy, yeah. and that's Maude's mother. Mm-hmm. So he married into the wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that's a really clever uh, kind of adjustment of noir convention is that, as I mentioned earlier, most noir franchises were set against World War II, or at least reflecting on the effects of World War II. This is set against the Gulf War, which is pretty much like the laid-back stoner of wars <laughs> because it just it was like super low stakes it didn't really accomplish much mm. Mm. that is really interesting i hadn't thought, see i'm not as familiar with the noir genre um because even mm. like chinatown would be neo-noir right because noir kind of yeah, sure ends in what the 60s 70s 70s i think the movie came out in the 70s but yeah the the noir was at its peak or at least most prolific in the 40s and 50s 40s and 50s right so that is interesting. I mean, I kind of thought that there was um, – and it was just something that I was drawn to this time. And maybe it was because I just recently watched uh, Buster Scruggs on mm. uh, Netflix. And so I was thinking about th- this film through that film being like an answer to the Coens – or to the accusation that the Coens are misanthropes, right? And so in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, they're kind of like intentionally showing – a sort of extreme humanist side. You know, a couple of the vignettes are just so touching and so sincere and so authentic in their exploration of of the human experience. And then I'm trying to think, okay, I wanted to read Lebowski then through the criticism. Are they just misanthropes? And I kind of saw the setup as being this weird misanthropic anti-Western. And I don't know. I kind of – what do you think about that? I mean do you think it's a sort of um, revisionist Western in a way as well? I mean, obviously, the Sam Elliott character lends itself to that. But even the beginning with this tumbleweed that's kind of just gently yeah. being blown. But rather than it being the hero's journey, as Kevin said, it's this anti-hero, apathetic uh, kind of – he's not a misanthrope, but he just is uninterested. But nevertheless, the portrayal of all the humans around him are kind of misanthropic. You don't really get this great sense that the Coens are humanists, <laughs> you know? And, this, and the stranger does at the end – so the Sam Elliott character at the end also mentions like this story has been – this is a story that kind of keeps coming and going. It happens all the time since the first carts moved to the West 
for the mm. pursuit of gold. I think he mentioned something like that. So like in this idea of like the pursuit for the West. I could see that at least on the on the Western reading that being pretty interesting. So I wrote down that quote because that really uh, stuck out to me as well as as summing up the entire film. And it was the human comedy perpetuates itself down the generations. And I think that that is in line with the tumbling tumbleweeds. It's in line with um, basically the, 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 the fuck it, let's go bowling attitude. Because mm. no matter what's going on, no matter who you are, and no matter what troubles you have, you know, the human comedy perpetuates itself down the generations. Life, life goes on. That's another quote. Uh, and the wind will blow you around. Down. They just say at one point, you know, life goes on. And and it does, even if your best friend's ashes just got blown in your beard. <laughs> <laughs> and tumbleweeds don't exist in L.A., right? I mean, I've never I've been here seven years. Like that just doesn't happen out here, especially moving down to Malibu, like tumbling all the way down to the beaches I've of Malibu. Well, that's what's so interesting never, because the tumbleweed ever? comes from the desert over the hills into the city, right? Yeah. It so definitely it's, seems it's like almost, Sam Elliott's character is. I think it's clear that the Coens love westerns. Yeah, yeah probably, of those are those. That's probably the genre they grew up watching, and it seems like we're seeing a stoner noir film through a western frame, is how I would call it. And I just thought about like an outsider too, like this the idea of a tumbleweed doesn't exist here in L.A. Yet somehow it's here on the on the shore. It's just sort of rolled up, and you're, the wind has carried it here, just as, like the wind is carrying in these strangers and stories. But yeah, I always thought of the tumbling tumbleweed as kind of a visual metaphor for him and how he just abides. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't strive. He doesn't achieve. He's not a nihilist. He's not a brother Seamus. He just is. He's just being he blown just, by the wind. He just goes he's, with the flow. And that's like what Kevin's point was. Like, it, it takes Walter to push him across the line, right? Like, right. he doesn't go across mm-hmm. the line. He has, like, he doesn't care about the injustice. Walter does. Walter's the wind that blows him into the story. That That's what starts the inciting event that then... Uh, creates the unfolding of the story. It's the wind that blows the dude into it. But then this is interesting because then it makes me think that, okay, so the dude is sort of this embodiment of a spirit that exists throughout time. He's like the embodiment of the out-of-placeness or of uh, the kind of like recurrence of the same. And so you get this tumbleweed as this this metaphor that's kind of introducing a foreign element. But the reason it's a foreign element isn't because it's... Um, like completely extra-worldly or supernatural, but it's just, it, it's always being blown around and it's kind of floating through all of the scenes. We're just not always aware of it. It seems like the stranger, but that's only because we've constructed our worlds to like hide from against the natural tumbleweed. I mean, because Los Angeles is built in the fucking middle of the desert, you know? Um, and so it's kind of like this idea that you have this eternal recur- recurrence of the same that kind of just blows through the sands of time, you know? Um, but we just don't always pay attention to it. And the dude is like the full embodiment of that repetition. And you haven't even mentioned how, what you're dressed as right now. I, I'm dressed as Walter. So for those who are not on the live stream, I'm, I'm Walter. I'm fucking Shomer Shabbos. Thank God it's not Shabbos because I, mean, I wouldn't be here. Like, I mean, how many John Goodman costumes are, do they sell for, or costumes that John Goodman wore did they sell in a Halloween store? Oh, my God. This has got to be the only one. Yeah, this is it. This is the one. Yeah. Where do you uh. think this film stands in the Coen Brothers filmography? I mean, besides it just being iconic, it might be the most famous, but like in terms of quality, like, do you think, like, what what are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, this is Kevin's favorite one, right? It's, it is my favorite just because, I mean, what, okay, like what constitutes what a favorite? For me, it's rewatchability. 
And mm-hmm. with The Big Lebowski, I mean, I can just uh, clearly rewatch it <laughs> like infinite times. Um, you know, uh, maybe I, I'll do 1A, 1B with No Country for Old Men. Mm, and God, that, that's my favorite, and then probably. Stick Fargo at two, and then and then go from there. But, I forgot um, about Fargo for a second there. My God, yeah. What's that? So say I, I forgot about Fargo for a second. I was like, oh yeah, No Country for Old Men, Serious Man. I was like, wait, of course. So your list again would be Big Lebowski, then No Country, then Fargo. Well, I think No Country probably would be one B because I'm not a person who goes to the theater twice to see a movie. Mm. But mm-hmm. I went to the theater twice to see No Country for Old Men because it had that effect on me. I had to go back. So, um, so yeah, I think 1A, 1B, and then number two. Or I guess that would make it number three. I don't know. <laughs> would be Fargo. I've heard Burn After Reading is actually great. I saw it one time and didn't like it that much, but I heard it's excellent, actually. I need to rewatch that. And then True Grit was their highest, their top grossing film of all time, which is surprising. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like it's their most optim or one of their more optimistic movies. For they sure. don't have a lot of optimistic movies, but I think even in they have an answer for how should one live life instead of just kind of resigning to misanthropy, as is perhaps evident in Buster Scruggs. We could talk about that in a different podcast, but it's definitely evident in a serious man mm-hmm. and uh Yeah, Barton Fink and all a lot of these. I mean, I think Fargo, they we have a a hero and an exemplar of human dignity in Marge Gunderson. But in this one, it is kind of like, all right, so there's a world of nihilists and fake achievers and all sorts of shit. And in order to get through life, you got to just abide. I feel like that's more of a positive statement than they often give. Hmm. It's the stoic sort of conclusion, right? Like there is like, uh, yeah, it's giving you a sense of how to live your life with dignity. Yeah. All right. So uh, I wanted to talk about, so we, we, touched a little bit on masculinity earlier i don't really know how i what i make about this but there is so there's of course the scene where the big lebowski says what makes a man mr lebowski and of course uh is it being prepared to do the right thing whatever the cost yeah yeah Yeah, sure that and a pair of testicles (laughs) uh but there are some interesting things that is done here with uh manhood so first of all there's the song the bob dylan song that starts the movie the man in me uh, then there is the dude says that being a man is having a pair of testicles and then the nihilists are threatening to not take off his testicles, but to cut off his Johnson. Uh, <laughs> Johnson. Th- yeah. The big Lebowski seems to affirm masculinity through his ability to achieve. Um, and then I, this one I like the landlord is an interesting kind of take on that character archetype because a lot of times in these hard-boiled detective stories he's a domineering like where's my rent kind of guy but instead he's a tight shirt wearing fat guy who does Mazorsky interpretive dances (laughs) (laughs) um and then even the stranger we talked a little bit about his voiceover at the beginning even the stranger subverts the kind of american ideal of masculinity or I'm sorry, the idea being that, so there's actually two ideas I conflated here. So it's interesting how this, the voice of the stranger, you might hear his voice and expect to be introduced to a badass like John Wayne, but instead it's a guy who goes into the market and writes a 69 cent check <laughs> right, right. for half and half <laughs> right? Uh, or cream, whatever it is. In his bathrobe. In his bathrobe, exactly. 
Um, now, what I was going to say about The Stranger is an interesting thing about how it subverts the archetype of noirs. First of all, voiceover, especially in the 40s and 50s noir films, was a staple. That and kind of guy. Who talked like this? Is that guy? Well, those are the villains. Oh, right. But, but just usually it's the protagonist with uh, I had voiceover. a story about this thing that happened. But The, the Stranger <laughs> in the movie... He literally just is talking, and he's like, "Well, I lost my yeah, lost, my train, of lost my train of thought. Whatever," uh, which is more of just like, "Yeah, it's a it's a noir film with a hit of weed." <laughs> <laughs> but lost my train Sprink of thought, or yeah. as Garrick Stormyloid said, sprinkled with weed and Kahlua. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's funny because you think that the film doesn't take itself seriously, right? Like I've read a lot of stuff about mm -hmm. this film and the death of meta narrative, yada yada yada. But the interesting thing is, is that a lot of people in this film have these serious like ethics that they abide by. You've got Lebowski. I mean, the big, the real Lebowski, who he clearly has some sort of ethic that he abides by. You've even got the nihilists, who like seem to be there's like at least a philosophy that they are ascribing to, even if Walter shits on it for saying that it's not really an ethos. Um, but the point is, is that there's still something going on there, right? <laughs> then you've got Walter, who's clearly got this overinflated sense of justice. Um, you've got these like surrounding themes that are constantly there. So it's almost like I'm not sure that the film is just a fuck it. The film is a sort of ethic, but it's uh, it's like a temper your expectations about the ethics that you live by rather than there are no ethics. Is fuck it not in itself an ethic? I think it is. No, it is. That's one. the thing. Right. Like yeah. the declaration that there are no ethics is an ethic. Right. And so to just mm. be like, hey, let's just live simply is still an ethic. It's just not it's not the grandiose ethic that leads us to war, which is the backdrop of this film. Right. Like and it's a bullshit war as well. So um, I think that there's something in that, you know, uh, it's kind of like a, don't have these crazy expectations and think that somehow your shit is all that important. Fuck it. Go bowling. Yeah. Getting really back to the, the masculinity thing for a second, I was just, I have some folks that Nerd of Anarchy is saying that Walter, you know, Walter sort of um, submitting to his wife's demands and having to talk mm. about this Pomeranian and bringing her bowling mm. and like being really at a weak point. Or the other piece that reminds me of is when he goes to talk to little Larry, you know, Walter again is like, the, he's there to intimidate. That's his job. Yet he like loses his cool or he's like completely geeks out like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, really, I loved your work. You know, I thought you were fantastic in your first few early years. Uh, you know, he just completely breaks down and gets into like this giddy mode before before getting into his tough spot and then completely melting down again. Well, I love what I love about that scene is it seems like all he had prepared was, is this your homework, Larry? That's all he had. And then, and then as soon as that doesn't work, because he assumed that, oh, well, he's going to crack right after right. that. All he can do is just repeat, is this your homework, Larry? Have you ever heard of Vietnam? Yeah. You know, he, just, he goes <laughs> off the rails. <laughs> right. It's like, well, shit, if this isn't working, the only other Nom. thing that pops to mind is Nam, of course. <laughs> Yeah, I just bought that car last week. Yeah. I'm sorry, I have to. I yeah, have how can to you quote. Not? How I can you not? To. How can you not? I totally get it. Um, so let's talk about this. Is one of my favorite readings of the film is, and I think it's like half serious. Is the dude as a Christ figure? So I, I I don't know if people point this out to be trolly, but he has the hair. He dresses in a robe and sandals. Uh, he has taken a vow of poverty. Well, that's like, yeah, that's that's a little extreme. Right. I, I had read it a little bit differently, more like his his reaction, the fact that he he's going to take it chill for the rest of us. He's going to take it easy for all of us. So the way that Jesus died for our sins, he will chill out for our sins. Like he'll just he will yeah. be our savior in that sense. You know, yeah. and I can see that. I mean, I don't know I, about I the, think I think that's a better reading. Yeah, 
I well, don't think it's so much I was, like I was thinking physical. about that, and it seems like the Coen brothers were completely conscientious of this because there's a character named the Jesus in the That's movie. That's true, right. And he's not just Jesus, he's the Jesus, just like there's the, the Jesus. dude. And like dude. that's not an accident. But then they make the Jesus the most despicable character in a world mm, of kind of that's a good point. greasy people because he's a literally a pedophile. A pedophile. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point because I, I always kind of struggle. Like, well, what's the point of this character except for just like to add, you know, obviously a great song and some great tension on the at the bowling alley scenes. But yeah, that's interesting because they do set up Jesus as this sort of completely faulty character. And instead, uh, I guess they propose the alternative. Well, and it goes into your masculinity thing, too, because he is like the, uh, what would you say, like the pathological and um, like tyrannical sexual man, you know, like literally went to jail. Like he is, um, he's that taken to like a disgusting, revolting extreme. Like what he says, I'm going to fuck you in the ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, everything that he does trigger. is sexualized. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Including you know, like you, the, the buffing of the balls. <laughs> you, you know, you know who else is a, a great uh, a great lens to talk about masculinity? And actually, this is one of the probably one of the only new things I took away after this viewing is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Brandt. Yeah, oh, Brandt. man. The ultimate brown noser. He's so good. And of course, every time I see Philip Seymour Hoffman after his unfortunate death, I can't help but, mi- I can't help but miss him. Um, I always tell people that when the Trump movie happens, it should have been C- Philip Seymour oh, Hoffman. Man. Can you imagine Philip Seymour Hoffman great. playing Trump? It would be the best thing ever. It's amazing to see um, his career trajectory, too, from like Twister and this to then all of a oh, sudden yeah. so he young. becomes this prestige actor. You know? I mean... He, yeah. he always and then when I go back and watch those earlier roles, you realize that he wasn't just a goofy guy because he did play like in Twister. He's like that kind of like that goofy stonery kind of meteorologist storm chaser dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in this, he's kind of like this awkward. But but in terms of like a, as a technician, the talent has always been there. It's just amazing to see him finally get his due and get the, the roles that he can really sink his teeth into later on in his career. There, there, but, I, but, but but more to the masculinity point, he's always he's always so geeked out and excited to point out Mr. Lebowski's accolades. It's the kind of guy who huh. gleams with pride by looking at someone else's prizes. And when it comes to masculinity, he derives it seemingly he derives every element of his self worth from worshiping the Big Lebowski. And it's you know he it's it's like. You know, with uh, to be crude about it, he is quite literally the Big Lebowski's bitch. Yeah, you know, yeah, and he's no dude that did not occur to us. Yeah, yeah, but it's a complete extension of himself. Yeah, or of of him. Like he he derives all of his self worth through that um, through the, through his accolades, through what's hanging on his wall. Please please don't touch that. Please don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he probably knows the accolades better than the actual man himself. Oh. In Django, is he the Stephen of the house? And we just don't see that he's really the one pulling the strings behind the scene. I don't know if there's evidence of that, but I like that. I like the idea of if, in fact, he did make money and the businesses that the Big Lebowski won ran were profitable. I like the idea that Brandt's doing all the work. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I couldn't help but think of Mr. Burns and Smithers with their relationship. Oh, <laughs> of course. Of course. That's a great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's talk about. So we kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there is a sense of. You know, you know, it's funny that 
we say that this movie is considered religious by some people because it's almost as if the movie goes out of its way to soil things that are sacred. And I think this is more to uh, the previous, I can't remember her exact name, the the uh, academic Erica that I was quoting earlier about. He said that instead of taking a joke as a religion, taking a religion as a joke, but things that are sacred are constantly being torn down in this movie. So, for example, sex. Maude has sex with the dude for contraception purposes, but I have no intention of the dude having anything to do with the baby. Uh, Conception to, purposes. Right. To to Kevin's point, someone named Jesus is a pedophile. Um, Walter is a Jew claiming to be Shomer Shabbos, but he's really just a Catholic parading as a Jew to be close to his wife. Of course, there's the success. Jeff Lebowski has supposedly led a life of achievement, mm-hmm. but it turns out he's a phony. And to Austin's point earlier, even the nihilists, which I guess you couldn't really say that nihilism is sacred in any way, but I find it funny that even they are revealed to be materialists like any other of us when when they say uh, they want the money, want the money, money Lebowski. Lebowski. And, then, and then Walter's like, fair, who's the fucking nihilists around here? <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Donnie's death. Uh, Donnie's death, it's one of their best friends. He nonchalantly dies of a heart attack, the most just non- climactic thing ever and then they mm. of course use the coffee can and then even, even death this, is sort of yeah and even the touching moment of the send-off is undercut by it blowing into walt into um the dude's face and i think it's things like this the kind of relentless making a joke out of things that ought to be taken seriously or at least we're told in society ought to be taken seriously is really cathartic for people. Can I tell you mm-hmm. this amazing anecdote that I recently heard about uh, – it's from – it's like one of these old Jewish like rabbinic tales. Um, sure. It says this Jewish rabbi that's talking to this young man and the young man comes to him and says, hey, uh, you know, rabbi, I want to know all the wisdom in the world. Can you tell me like all – like the wisdom of God or something like that? And the rabbi says, OK. He's like, you're not ready. He's like – uh, I don't think I can do that. And the guy says, no, please, please. He says, okay, fine. I'll tell you. He says, two guys come down a chimney. He's like, uh, one guy's got soot on his face. The other guy doesn't have soot on his face. Uh, who who cleans himself? Who washes his face? And the kid goes, well, obviously the guy with the soot on his face. The rabbi goes, no, he's like the guy that doesn't have soot on his face because he looks at the guy that has soot on his face and he surmises that he must have soot on his face. So he washes his face. And then he says, uh, he's like, okay. Uh, he's like, uh, now the, uh, I got another story for you. He says, two guys come down a chimney. Uh, one has soot on his face, the other doesn't have soot on his face. Who washes his face? And the kid goes, oh, I get it. The guy that doesn't have soot on his face because he sees the guy with soot on his face. And the rabbi says, no, obviously the guy with soot on his face because he can taste it. It's in his eyes, it's in his mouth, of course, so he's going to wash it off his face. And then he says, um, he's like, all right, I got one more for you. He's like, it's a different story. He's like, this is how it is. He says, two guys come down a chimney. Uh, one guy has soot on his face, the other guy doesn't have soot on his face, who washes his face? And the kid goes, well, the one guy washes his face for this reason, and the other guy washes his face for this reason. And the rabbi goes, no, you don't get it, you don't understand the mysteries of God. He's like, they obviously both wash their face. How can you go down a chimney and not think that you got soot on your face? You're going to wash your face. And he says, you just don't understand the wisdom and absurdity and, and whatnot of God. And the idea is that this story is like, we're constantly trying to grasp things. We're constantly trying to know things, but we're basically just entering into a story that's been going on for millennia that's repeating, and we're kind of just participants in this, and that there's this absurdity, there's this excess, there's this more than, and you can't ever fully grasp it. To try to seek to truly understand you know, the mysteries of God or the mysteries of the transcendent or whatever is completely beside the point. And I, I just love 
that idea. And there's a shitload of others of those other kind of rabbinic tales. But my homie Peter Rollins came on our podcast and told us that, and I thought that was fucking brilliant. And that kind of fit to what Jacob was just saying. I thought. Can I simplify that to say, if you try to understand God, you're always going to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, and 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 I think it's the arrogance that you think that you can try to understand God. And that you can ask that question as like a young kid. You're like, I'm going to understand the mysteries of God or I'm going to understand philosophy or I'm going to understand the meaning of death, right? Or I'm going to understand the meaning of, of whatever rather than kind of just realizing that it's far more complex and that life is kind of absurd and you have to kind of embrace that absurdism. What do you guys think about the fantasy sequences? I was – yeah. Why don't you go for it, Kevin? <laughs> You know, I was struggling a bit with that today when I was taking notes. I didn't really take any notes during those sections because I wasn't sure what to make of it. I mean, obviously, they're chock full of symbolism. Um, Like, for instance, there's a tie-in where uh, at the end of the second one, the nihilists are in those red suits chasing uh, the uh, the dude with giant scissors. And in an earlier scene... uh, a similar like red background painting with giant scissors is in Maud's apartment. Oh, I didn't see mm. that. Um, and there's a lot of little things like that where, and that was something else I wanted to bring up and I was excited to bring up is there are a lot of instances of, of the dude taking something from his environment and then repeating it or applying it oh, later. Yeah. Um, so like in the very beginning uh, on the TV, George HW Bush is saying this aggression will not stand. And later in the movie, the dude says, this aggression will not stand, man. And like, it's way later. It's not like the next scene. Mm. But if if you're paying attention, there are like a few different moments where like with the scissors and with the aggression will not stand. Uh, There's one with the Chinaman too, but but the big Lebowski repeats that. Um, He's a Chinaman Tuckman from me in Korea. Like, there's this, a lot of these beautiful, like, I call them the ping pongs. There's a name for that, like, when they're it's called. It's like a callback? Yeah, it's like a callback. They're called earlier on and then repeated later, but uh, you get them even with Walter when he says, uh, uh, oh, God, what was the one I just, I just thought of? Anyway, I can't remember. My favorite one is when. Oh, Johnson. <laughs> oh, my, my favorite one is when Maude says, I don't remember what exactly she says, but she says the parlance of our times. Yes. And then the dude uses it, it but he uses it wrong. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, a young trophy wife uh, in, in the, the parlance, parlance of, of our, our times, time. which makes no sense. Yeah, when, he's talking, when he's in the limo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> young trophy wife, you know, in the parlance of our times. Yeah, you just, uh, there's a lot of those. Re- I mean, and that's just beautiful <laughs> script writing, which I, I, we should talk a bit about Ethan Cohen and just sort of his script writing is so precise. I don't know if it's a shooting script or just like a uh, like an annotated script after the after the fact. But you know, even Brandt has some repeated lines. He says something like, "Without the like little kids, without the necessary means for the necessary means for the," and mm. he repeats that. You phrase, think that was in the script? Well, it's written in the script that I found online. I don't know if that's a shooting script or they just like they just took captions after the fact. But my thinking is that they're so precise. These filmmakers, I mean, I've, what, I've heard they are. But I, anyway, I, I Ryan. So Ryan used to live with a guy who was a PA on pretty much every big Hollywood movie, and he had he, and he worked on um, what was, Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar, and he says that working on a Coen Brothers set is the simplest. It, it's the greatest set to work on because they have everything meticulously planned out. They know exactly what time they're shooting. They know exactly where the camera is going to be. They know exactly what lens they're going to use. They know exactly who's going to say what. They've already rehearsed and, and they're over do- and over. And instead of like your average fourteen to sixteen hour day, apparently they're just they're done in a solid nine hours, which is unheard wow. of. 
which is pretty awesome. Uh, but back to the fantasy sequences, this time what I noticed, and maybe I'm overthinking this, but I feel like in the first fantasy sequence when Maud's goons punch him and then he's floating through Los Angeles and he sees Maud fly away on a rug, I feel like even in that one second where he saw Maud, it's established that he's sexually attracted to her because then he's... He's like in the bowling lane, and the bowling and the bowling ball goes over him, and it's hard for me not to think of it as phallic, especially because in the second one, uh, yeah, the ball, it, it's whatever, it's, gutter balls, gutter you balls, know, it's yeah. like a porn, it's a porno starring him and Maude. So I, that's something I hadn't thought about the first time. Hmm. Interesting. I just love the simplicity of his unconscious, right? Like when he's knocked mm-hmm. out, he's thinking about like flying and bowling you and know? sex. Yeah, and sex. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of it, man. Did you guys notice the cameos? This is my first, I know, this is crazy, my first time seeing Flea as one of the nihilists, you know, Flea from the Chili Peppers, yeah. who I've mm-hmm. met a couple times here in the parking lot, and then and then Amy Mann as the girl with the with her toe clipped off. I remember Amy Mann, but I didn't know Flea was one of the nihilists, and he's the one who's like, we do not care! <laughs> oh, and it would be remiss of us not to mention that the nihilists are based off of my favorite band of all time, Kraftwerk. Right, uh, Autobahn. The... the the LP that is in Maud's house is called Autobahn, and Autobahn is the name of probably the most famous Kraftwerk song. Uh, so, and they're even wearing the red shirts with black ties, which is uh, the their, robots. Well, yeah, from the Man Machine Man album. Machine, that's that's, right. that, that's the costume that they're wearing. So uh, that's always been another reason why I love the movie this so movie much. This movie is just perfect. It's just, man. It's crazy good. It's. I mean, it started a religion. <laughs> it's got probably a bar themed after it in every major city. I mean, if 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 the philosophy is that there's like that like that comedy uh, is kind of just going to keep rolling through time, and that there's just kind of like this this tumbleweed that will just keep blowing throughout time or something like that, and I, I feel like the film is kind of like that tumbleweed, like as as its own artifact. Like maybe it was a film that was a little bit ahead of its time, but. I feel like in 50 years, 100 years, this film will still have a sort of resonance because it's it's kind of an out-of-place film because it's detailing an out-of-place dude in a world that doesn't quite operate according to a similar logic. And people are always going to be drawn to that because they're going to be fascinated by it. So I think the film will always be fascinating for that very same reason. Cool. Kevin, is there anything else you want to bring up before we go into the mailbag? Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Bars are everywhere. Why is there a bar everywhere that the dude goes? That was something else that I thought of watching it today. I mean, there's a bar, even in the scene where the Big Lebowski is crying in front of the fireplace, he has like this tray that's a bar right behind him. And and you'd think that like it's just an excuse to get the dude a drink in every scene. But he doesn't get a scene in that one, yet there's still a bar there. So one thing I was thinking about is that you have all of these disparate characters that kind of have nothing in common except alcohol. I don't mm. know. That was the like the one through line I felt like all of these people whose philosophies clash and whose backgrounds clash and whose life goals clash have in common is booze I don't and they all why. had Kahlua <laughs> <laughs> who has Kahlua well I think another yeah, thing is that one. I think even Jackie noir, I know right I think noir films alcohol and just drinking just hard liquor in, in every detective's office there's 
uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking? It's probably like a tumbler and a yeah. It's like a a flask. It's or not a flask, like like a big uh, yeah, big. But it's usually probably a like Scotch whiskey. Yeah, exactly. There's always a decanter. The decanter. Yeah, yeah. There you go. But here it's like a nice. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. It's a decanter. (laughs) But then here it's just like. But now it's a white Russian with creamer and yeah. That's what's so great. He doesn't drink whiskey or fucking brandy or anything like that. He drinks (laughs) a white Russian. And who drinks white Russians? Yeah, I actually wonder. You know how I think I don't think it was on the podcast, but we were talking about how the movie Sideways like really permanently dam damaged the Merlot brand. Yeah, Merlot Be- business. Yeah, yeah, because of that line. I'm not drinking Merlot. I have to believe the people at Kahlua literally pray to this movie every yeah. day because it catapulted their drink into a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the the drinks define the characters too because there's a scene where they're all at the bar at the bowling alley and the dude is drinking his Caucasian. The um, the uh, uh, Donnie is drinking a soda and mm. Walter's drinking a beer. And then that's when the stranger, Sam Elliott, comes back and orders the sarsaparilla. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, all right, let's move into mailbag. Before we do that, uh, guys, you got to check out Kevin's podcast. It's called The Create Unknown, where he has in-depth conversations with the hottest YouTubers uh, Kevin, anything else you want to say about it? We've got a bunch of episodes up already, a lot on the way. Uh, just released one with iDubs. We have um, uh, Jake from Vsauce 3, Smarter Every Day, Dolan Dark and Granday, and um, Michael from Vsauce will be coming up next. Awesome. Oh, nice. All right, so I did not have time to write down the mailbag questions today, but Austin, I believe, has his email set up. Do you have uh, questions for us, Austin? Yeah, I got a couple for us. So... The first one comes from Jack, and it is about Walkabout. So he said, hey guys, first I wanted to say thanks for for covering Walkabout on the show. I feel Australian movies don't get enough overseas attention. I was also happy to hear an appreciation for Australian New Wave, as I feel like it's overlooked at times. When I watched this movie for film studies, along with Wake and Fright and They're a Weird Mob, we looked at them through the lens of films made by international directors reflecting their view of Australia and its culture. Does this change how you look at these movies like it does for me, or do you still see them as just Australian movies? Also, when you see an Aussie film, do you think of it as an international movie because our two cultures are similar, or is it just me thinking that American movies are familiar because of the cultural output of the United States? Well, Austin, I feel like as a American living in Australia, you're probably best equipped to answer this question. <laughs> well, I mean, so the interesting thing is I do think that there's something really fascinating about a foreigner telling a story a- about a particular culture that a lot of times can be very illuminating, right? Like we talked about it a little bit last week with regards to, you know, a, a black American filmmaker's making films about slavery versus somebody like McQueen who makes a film about slavery and how it's going to be different. And then versus, you know, a white dude who makes a film about slavery and it's going to be different. There's something about not being immersed in a given culture that gives you a different perspective, that gives you an outside lens. I mean, when I see Wake and Fright, I view it as an Aussie film, but I view it as an Aussie film because it's so ingrained in Australian cinema culture that I forget sometimes that it's made by somebody who's an international director. And then similar with Walkabout, like, I get, I mean, the dude's English, right? Nicholas Rogue was English. So, yeah. and he changes, he changes a little bit from the short story or from the, from the novel that it's based on. Um, because I don't think that originally the main character is supposed to be English, but he makes him English in this story again. So, you know, there is something interesting about 
that clash of cultures that I think adds to the viewing experience. But yeah, I still view Wake and Fright and The Walkabout as Australian films. And maybe that's to my detriment. Maybe it's because I do view the culture so similar to, um, or I mean, so uh, I'm sorry, I, I view kind of like Australia as being like so different than America, um, but kind of similar that it's speaking in a similar language. But nevertheless, that difference and anytime I see that difference on display, I just kind of like automatically give it like the status of the foreign. I, I don't know. What do you think? All right, so we got a. You want to read it, Jacob? We got a question coming in from uh, from YouTube, by the way. Yay, wisecrack! What's your favorite Jeff Bridges film? Thanks, Sam Albright. Well, I mean, I hate to disappoint you, Sam, but it's got to be this movie. Uh, <laughs> other other Jeff Bridges movies. I mean, it's not the one where he played a demon hunter with Ryan Reynolds. I can tell you that. No, and not True Grit, probably. Um, fuck. What's the name? I just totally forgot. Oh, the Last uh, Picture Show is pretty good. That's a long time ago. Oh God, what I film? That was even him. The Last Picture Show. Yeah, that's what, what I was thinking. Be... Last Picture Show. That's right. Hmm. I, it's got to be Lebowski for me. Yeah. Well, because I, mean, I don't think I, of I The Last even... Picture Show as being a Jeff Bridges film. I can't even watch other Jeff Bridges movies without thinking about the. Dude. I know he just right. He just he, that's just who he is now. Kevin, any other favorite a, Jeff Bridges movies? There's a Peter movies? Weir movie with Jeff Bridges in it about a plane crash. I can't remember its name. No, I mean I did really like. Uh, True Grit, personally, but um, I'm literally Googling Jeff Bridges. <laughs> yeah, and, I, uh, I, Crazy Heart was pretty good. That's a long time ago. That was pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're all in agreement on this one with Lebowski. Yeah, I think that's it. All right, you got uh, another one, Austin? Yeah, so hold on. This one kind of goes back a little bit, but this one is from Strawberry Satire. It's about Mean Girls. Uh mm. Strawberry Satire says, hello, longtime YouTube viewer, first-time podcast listener. I think you're all killing it. Listen to your Mean Girls review and found myself agreeing with the Foucault connection and think it is most exemplified, or it most exemplified the musical, specifically the song I'd Rather Be Me. And then the lyrics are, we're supposed to all be ladies and be nurturing and care. Is that really fair? Boys get to fight. We have to share. Here's the way that turns out we always understand how to slap someone down with our underhand. And then the comment uh, goes back to comment. There's an odd backfire of female socialization where when denied the approval to be outwardly aggressive, women will turn to social manipulation and uh, passive-aggressive conversation. The only way to destroy the master's house is not with the master's tools or as the song goes on to sing, quote again, here's my right finger to how girls should behave. And then hope you're all having a good time wherever you are. Wait, is this Mean Girls on Broadway or something? Um, I, 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 it must be. Okay. Oh, awesome! Interesting. Yeah, but I thought yeah, that was I interesting. That... I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. The idea of different standards and stuff like that with regards to uh, to how women behave and then how women are portrayed, especially young teenage girls. And we talked about it at, uh, on the podcast too that the film is kind of like it's kind of what like uh, a metaphorical take about animal nature and like the jungle and the safari and shit like that right right yeah 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 yeah. but that is interesting i feel like that they take something that is more of a deep cut reading of the film and make it explicit in the stage adaptation that's really interesting hmm. anyway so guys if you want to send us other emails hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co also you can hit us up with a voicemail at Two one elf gut oh seven. Yeah, that's our our, our catchy so, phone number. Two one elf gut oh seven or two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. 
We got some voicemails here. This first one is from who should we do? Let's go, Jake. Go, Jake. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Jake calling from the middle of nowhere in Michigan. Uh, I was just listening to your Django Unchained podcast, and um, I, th- I thought it was interesting. I was listening to the part where I um, can't remember who was talking about the scenes where Django's killing all those people and their blood is splattering all over this these like white symbols like the cotton and the white horse. And um, the takeaway was that that was a a symbol of Django assassinating white supremacy. And I thought it was interesting because I had a different take on that. Um, and I, I could sort of see a double meeting. So um, what I what I took away from it was um, all these symbols that represent white society and white power now have blood on them. It's almost like there's blood on everything that the white man touches. Everything from the, the cotton, which is an industry used to subjugate black people, to the horses, which were brought over by Europeans to essentially exterminate um, Native Americans living there. So anyway, um, I thought it was a really interesting take on it, and um, and I thought it was interesting that there might be a double meaning there. Love what you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you, Jake. Yeah. I think that there's just as much validity that reading as what we were saying. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right, this next one is coming from Devin. Go, Devin. Hey, Weisscott team. This is Devin. Um, calling uh, in regards to the Django Unchained Show Me the Meaning episode. I wanted to call in because I was kind of overhearing some of the talk about uh, what the meaning behind the movie is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one thing I think you guys may have not really talked about or, or sort of alluded to was the kind of individualism of uh, of Django and sort of, I think Austin mentioned something about uh, there was uh, some intellectual who wrote an article about, you know, how, it, uh, you know, Django's not really like a Nat Turner figure. It's not, it's not a communal thing. It's about a, this individual who rises up. But I think the thing that most people are missing about the the movie, one thing that they forget is is really about the mythology of movies and and how it sort of shapes our cultural perspective. In terms of the last hundred years or so before Django was made, the typical mythological hero has always been a, a, a white guy, uh, whether that's John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. And I think the the movie is putting is, is sort of taking that figure and replacing it with this uh, black slave. And I think that's a powerful image in and of itself. But on top of that, I think um, and I think um, some people are, are a little bit wrong about Schultz sacrificing himself for Django. I think he was, at the end there, he was um, pretty selfish and left Django in a lurch. And then, of course, Django has to make the choice to, uh, or, or he's forced in a situation where he needs to, to truly become a hero on his own. All right, I'm going to cut it off there. If you guys can send us these voicemails, keep doing it. Keep them snappy if you can. But uh, what do you think about that, guys? I think it's I mean, it's, pretty, I mean, it's an interesting take on I mean, I think that's exactly – I mean, I haven't seen Django in a while. I wasn't on the podcast last week, but uh, this idea of subverting the hero or creating an all-new hero seems to be kind of what I took away from the film overall anyway. It's kind of the, where I saw that that – hero of Django as this sort of unexpected character being the... Yeah, the fastest gun in the West. We don't usually think of a black slave. No, 
and then and it's revenge you know the revenge story of it being so so satisfying rock and roll let's do one more let's go matt hi wisecrackers this hi. is matt from atlanta calling for the show me the meaning podcast was calling with two particular comments i had regarding your recent broadcast about Django. The first was a quick comment on Dr. Schultz's death. I don't really see it as being a sacrifice in any way, shape, or form, because they were almost out the door. His murder of Candy is more an act of pride and self-destructive. It sets Django back, actually, and forces him to escape again. And I think that might be, this may be an overreach, uh, a comment on white liberalism and acting in its pride and acting at the wrong time and how everything that occurs after that fact is reflective of black empowerment. All right, I'm going to stop him there. So, yeah, Austin, you mentioned that there was a sacrifice going on, and that was something that I didn't quite see. Um, so what do you think about that? I think that's an interesting take. It's funny that both of the, the two callers picked up on the same thing, that he actually kind of did a selfish thing, and it actually fucks Django. And then Django has to scrape himself up from uh, from a shitty situation that he's been dug into. I think that's a really interesting take. Um, I Again, I, I, I'm... I'm op- I like exploring all of these different things, and I think that if the resonance is there, then we can talk about it, and that's fun. So I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, Matt was talking about the possible way to interpret uh, the criticism of white liberals. There's another part in the movie in which that crossed my mind, and it's when Schultz first brings Django into the bar when Django has his first beer. He says something like, I hate slavery, but since I just bought you mm. and I need your help, I'm going to use slavery <laughs> to my advantage. And then he says, right. but I feel guilty. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I feel like if ever there was Tarantino overtly winking at like people who think that feeling guilty is enough is enough or really doing anything. Yeah, it's uh, a I, sort I of like there. subversion of the white savior mentality, right? Yeah, right. So funny. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go and wrap it up for today. Just to let you guys know, definitely check out the Create Unknown, Kevin's podcast. If in-depth conversation with all these YouTubers who are apparently more famous than me since I haven't been invited on the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we love working with Kevin. He was actually our first collab yeah. way back in the day. Kevin, so, we did a video so on— So thank you, sir, for that. Yeah, thanks for joining, man. Hope you had a good time today. I did. I mean, it was. I was really excited to talk about this movie because I love it so much. So uh, this was a great opportunity, and um, thanks, guys. Yeah, absolutely. You can check out that first collab we did. Uh, Kevin hosted and wrote a video on our channel about his favorite book, which came up today on the podcast, uh, which uh, was the Confeder- Confederacy of Dunces, Ignatius Riley. And by the way, Kevin, whenever I see my aunt, she still talks about you and how nice you were and how that was such a fun experience for her. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was yeah. a separate, vi- aunt a separate that, video. That I could have gotten leprosy from. Uh... You're right. <laughs> you survived, though. Yeah, my, my aunt uh, cooked armadillo for Kevin. Yeah, we did a, a video on, was it f- five food, weird foods that artists ate or something? Yeah, I actually really love that video of, of yours, Kevin. I think it turned out great. 
Uh, me too. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And your aunt is a doll. And uh, I was super <laughs> nervous about eating the armadillo because supposedly you can get leprosy from it, which thankfully I, I did not. So, like leprosy, actually leprosy. Yes, like yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it's not cooked right. Yeah. So like, because because Kevin's out in New York, and uh, we were like, how are we gonna get this food? And Jared's like, my aunt is super nice, and I'm sure she'll cook it. I don't know where she got the armadillo from. She had to order it, and I was like, yeah, but she's retired. She doesn't have anything better to do. <laughs> yeah. So she had a really good time. And so she made, yeah, check out that video. It's very funny on Kevin's channel on Vsauce 2. Cool. All right, guys, signing off from Hollywood, California. Peace, guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>